The Fool's Gallery presents Chapter 9, Haven. Taken from the journals of Max Landau. Year 148 DD. 76 days into our voyage. I write this passage by firelight, though it is not by candle or lantern. Instead, the fire is from the island. It burns so bright it turns night into day, its flames climbing high enough to kiss the sky. It is a terrible and beautiful sight to behold, but I find that I cannot look at it without thinking of those we left behind. Instead, I move to the stern of the queen and bear witness to the inferno. It's all I can do. Watch the first island we've discovered since we started this expedition. Burn. It seems a lifetime ago that Mookie's voice echoed from the crow's nest, yelling, Land Ho! A lifetime, but yet only two days have passed. I remember I rushed to the railing with the rest of the crew and looked out through the early morning fog. There it was. Off in the distance, a splatter of green on the otherwise pale gray canvas of the ocean. Land. I could scarcely believe it. It seems over the course of this voyage I had given up hope of ever seeing anything solid again, and I nearly wept at the sight. And I wasn't alone. It appeared many of the crew had shared my worries on the success of our voyage, and there were only a few dry eyes amongst us. We weighed anchor, and Mr. Parbat, the first mate, called for a landing party. His choice of personnel was intriguing, to say the least. He chose one. Dawn, the bald woman. They would go alone under the island. Or at least, that was his hope. Willis had something to say about that. He insisted that I go along, to which Mr. Parbat flatly refused. I could hardly disagree with him. I have neither martial skill nor gift with the spoken word. I know nothing of plants or survival, and would only be a burden to the expedition, each point of which was laid out by our first mate as kindly as possible. But when Willis has a notion, he is hard to be moved, and his point was well made. This is a venture of exploration, he said. Max is here to witness our journey and tell the world of it. How is he supposed to do that if he is safe on the ship? It was a point that not even Mr. Parbat could argue, and I didn't even try. Willis, after all, is the owner of the Queen, and the captain was too drunk in her cabin, unable to protest. So, I was loaded into the lifeboat, stuck between a woman who terrified me, a man who didn't want me, several stacks of food, oil for lanterns, mapping equipment, and Don's large bag of blades. It was hardly what I call comfortable, but the excitement to set foot on an island more than made up for it. And what an island it was. Trees the size of the great tower of Sados rose hundreds of feet into the sky, their green ceilings peppered with fruit the size of our lifeboat, each one a different impossible color. They flourished above us, orange, purple, and red stars hanging in the green leafy sky. Our boat slid into the shore and we disembarked. 
A soft river trickled nearby, and birds of unknown classification and plumage soared through branches so thick and gnarled they seemed to defy any logic or reason. Truly, words cannot describe the beauty and natural wonder of the island. And as we set off into the wilds, even the sure-footed dawn stumbled, for her eyes were drawn in every direction. It wasn't long before the beach was lost to view, and Mr. Parbat moved to a tree, unsheathing his knife. His intention, no doubt, was to mark our path back, but just before his blade met bark, a small voice cried out, Stop! We swung round, two knives appearing in Don's hands as if they had always been there. A girl, no more than sixteen, stood on a large rock which loomed over us. She had auburn hair and what looked to be several dark scars tracing across her face. Nimbly, she dropped down from the rock. As she drew nearer, her face came into light and I gasped in horror. They were not scars disfiguring her face, but roots. They seemed to have sprouted out of her left ear and were crawling their way across the poor girl's face. I was lost for words, but thankfully Mr. Parbat is made of sterner stuff than I. He extended one hand and spoke in soft tones to the girl, his deep voice reassuring, his handsome face doing most of the work for him. The girl clasped his hand and introduced herself. Her name was Sephora Kane, and she had never seen anyone come from the ocean before. She asked about our ship and her crew. Mr. Parbat told her, giving, in my opinion, a romanticized version of both. But the girl's eyes grew wide with excitement, and when the tale was done, she invited us back to her village. Back to Haven. And with that, she scampered back up the rock and through the trees, stopping only for a moment to beckon us to follow. We did so. Don and Mr. Parbat easily scaling the rock, stopping only to help me up after them. We followed the girl as best we could through the forest, but she was quick and knew every rock, every branch, every root. I couldn't help but wonder how those same roots made it onto her face. I imagined an older brother placing a seed in her ear, only to find to his horror that it took root and was spreading. A harmless childhood prank turned dark, perhaps. I know not. But curiosity has abolished any of the previous trepidation I felt. We continued, stopping only for moments to see the truly wondrous or the truly strange. There was a tree that swirled around itself like a giant whirlpool, its center the nest of some great animal. There was a ship covered in vines, much larger than the Alabaster Queen. How it made its way this far inland was anyone's guess, but I couldn't shake the feeling that the vines seemed to be dragging it inwards, into the island. And then, quite suddenly, the trees opened up to reveal a small town. No, that, that's not right. No town was ever so wonderful. I think it is more accurate to describe the place as a playground. The houses hung in the trees from vines, little boxes dangling in the air, with ladders hanging from each porch or doorway. Stairs encircled the trunks of the trees, leading to catwalks for the more elderly to traverse. But the most amazing thing were the vines that led from the houses to the ground. We watched as a woman slung a leather strap around a vine and hurled herself into the air, sliding down towards us with terrifying speed. Just feet from the ground, she let go and hit the ground in a roll, only to spring to her feet, her face flush with excitement. She was a handsome woman, in her early forties, only a few gray streaks in her jet-black hair revealing her age. She smiled a broad and friendly smile as she introduced herself as the leader of the town and Sephora's mother, Maris. Apparently... It had been some time since they had visitors in Haven. Maris apologized for not being more prepared to host us. They were in the midst of a celebration, but we were most welcome. 
A voice echoed her as an old man approached from a stairwell. He was in his late seventies, what little hair remained to him more white than silver. Maris introduced him as her husband, Neville. My eyebrows raised at that, but Mr. Parbat was too polite to let any age different disrupt his manners. He asked what they were celebrating, and Neville laughed. Tonight was the seventh night of their eight-day spring solstice, the time of year where all flowers bloom brightest. Without skipping a beat, Neville invited us to join them, to which Maris gave the first signs of being uneasy, saying we must be tired from our voyage and would need sleep. But Neville waved away her objections, stating that though his wife may be the leader around here, she couldn't get everything she wanted. Mr. Parback gracefully accepted and allowed Neville to lead us away from his young wife. As we walked through the square, I too noticed something odd. Though there were many men of advanced age in the village, I did not see a single elderly woman, the oldest being Maris herself. I thought this strange, but considered it no more than a passing thought, as we were led to an empty treehouse and given dishes of fruit that tasted so delicious they wiped all misgivings from my mind. We ate until we met our fill, and then, feeling the explorer's spirit, I decided to walk around the village. After twenty days at sea, it was a relief to stretch my legs and see something new. And everything was beautiful. The town was bustling, cleaning from the previous night's festivities, preparing for the coming party. They all seemed friendly enough, but I sensed a feeling of great unease amongst them. After a while, I found myself in their town square, the center of their festivities. In its center stood a delicate sapling, its bark a pearly white, its leaves a deep red. Transfixed, I raised my hand to touch it, but for the second time that day a voice yelled out for me to stop. I turned to find Sephora there, her roots colored purple in the fading sunlight, her eyes wild and feverish. I asked what was the matter, but she cut me off, asking me when we intended to set sail. I did not know, I said, but perhaps I could take her aboard the ship, just for a tour. The girl shook her head violently, whispering urgently that we should leave tonight, and that when we did, we should take her mother with us. I did not know what to say to that. The girl's voice was cracking, her eyes twitching around the square, but no one was there. I opened my mouth to speak, but then a horn blew, and a cry went up. The spring solstice was about to begin. I looked back for Sephora, but the girl had disappeared. Whatever she had intended, it was far too late to act now. The Endless Ocean was written and directed by Keenan Ellis. Ambient sound designed by Sword Coast Soundscapes. Check out our other podcast, The Phone Booth, which explores a world in which 99% of every human being on the planet has a superpower. Also, if you like our shows and want to help us make more, please consider becoming a patron at www.patreon.com slash foolsgallery. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week on The Endless Ocean.